Welcome to the Everyday Sniper. You got Frank from Sniper's Hide here, and we're into part three of our Burger No BS BC campaign, I guess you can call it. It's it's like a, a long... Been watching Grant. Have you guys watched Grant on History Channel? Uh, I recorded it. I need to... I haven't watched it yet. It's, it's, it's pretty good. Yeah, they did a really good job on it Um, as far as being a, a little bit recreation, a lot of history... And, and just digging deep into what these guys were thinking. I think uh, Grant, so it's kind of like a military campaign we got going on here. Cool. How you doing, Brian? You're in the background over there. Yeah, I'm doing good. Can you hear me all right? Yep, you sound great. Uh, we all sound good today. I have no, no staticky, no weirdness going on. Um, did you guys have a good Memorial weekend? Did you manage to get out of the house and, and at least get some sun? Oh, yeah. We've been disregarding the governor here for quite a while now, so that really didn't have any impact on our plans. Oh, excellent. Excellent. <laughs> That's always good. Um, to kick this off, uh, I get, you guys just put out an article on, you know, talking BCs, long range versus short range and, and how that can affect uh, you know, the variations in the BC and things like that. So this might be a good place to start to come on the heels of the article. And for guys who want to look at those articles, go over to the uh, Burger No BC. Um, it, it's it's it, it's BC.com and, and these articles are all posted. So I, I know there's guys listening and they're talking about just a monster amount of information that we're putting out. And, and, and they're talking about second and third listens. But to reinforce what you guys are saying, the Burger website does have hard copy articles, evergreen content for them that they can go look at and, and follow up with. So while they're listening along, if they want to read these articles, they can. Yeah, that's right, Frank. The uh, The articles are all under uh, – they can either go to nobsbc.com or on the regular Burger website under resources – and uh, then under ballistics, you'll see a tab that says no BSBC and all of uh, all that content comes up. And those are all articles that are written by Brian. Oh, nice. So there you go. You guys get kind of like freak chapters of his book. So, um, Brian, did yeah, you uh, I was going to say, did you want to jump into the um, the article side? Yeah, yeah, sure. I'd love to. So the, the last ones that we put up were um, BC effects on accuracy at short range and long range. Um, now, this is something that I'm really glad to have the opportunity to talk about this because it's, it's really hard to write about. You know, I've had been talking with shooters for decades, and I'm familiar with a lot of the language that gets used on rifle ranges and the misuse of some words that really ends up crippling uh, your understanding in the long run. And so, you know, that's, it's a lot easier to sort that stuff out, you know, talking through it. Um, and a couple of these examples are, you know, just use take the word accuracy, right? If somebody has a rifle that they shoot three shots into a cloverleaf group, then, you know, they're going to post that on Facebook and be proud of the great accuracy that they have from their gun. Well, the reality is that that's not a demonstration of accuracy. That's a demonstration of precision. Um, and, and it's more than nitpicking. You know, there's, there's implications that I'll get into here in a minute. Um, accuracy is how close your group center is to your aim point. So, like, how far is that three-shot group from where you intended it to be, right? You normally want it to be on a target or in the center of a target. Um, and if you can shoot very small groups... Uh, but you can never quite manage to center them because you have a wandering zero on your gun or something, then you're actually suffering with accuracy, even though you might have good precision. And these terms are important because when we talk about like how BC affects accuracy at short range and long range, um, I think there's, there's a lot of misunderstandings, you know, like imagine you're a beginning shooter, very first guy, never heard about a BC before. And he's looking at some bullets that are like, short flat base bullets and some bullets that have, you know, long boat tails and they're heavy. And, you know, he asked the local guru at the rifle range, you know, so, Hey, what's the difference? He's, Oh, well, this one has a higher BC. Well, what's that mean? Well, it's more accurate. Well, why do the bench rest guys use these short flat base bullets? Oh, well, it's more accurate at long range. Well, how's that? And it's not long before the gurus are stumped, right. As to like how, 
how this can be. And part of the reason is because we're using the wrong words, right? We're using the wrong vocabulary. So Fentrest is a contest of precision, all right? Those guys don't give a shit where those groups are as long as they're on that, that paper target at 100 yards or 200 yards and because it's a pure precision contest. Now I get it. Some bench rest events have score, uh, like a secondary score event. But for the most part, they're trying to shoot small groups. And when you're trying to shoot small groups at short range, you know, 100 to 300 yards, the environmental stuff that ballistic performance helps you overcome is not really that important. You know, you still have wind deflection, and that can still hurt you but it's usually going to be less decisive at short range. So as far as like we break these articles in the no BSBC campaign, we break them down very systematically. And in this, like follow like the Plinko thing down into its category. This is the effect of ballistic coefficient on accuracy at short range. And the answer really is there's, there is no effect of BC on accuracy at short range. Um, you could have a high-performance bullet or a low-performance bullet, and it really doesn't directly uh, determine how how close you're able to put that bullet to your aim point at 100 yards. Mostly what determines accuracy at short range is, you know, having a rifle that holds zero, you know. You zero it at 100 yards, and if you come back the next day or the next year and your zero is still on, then your rifle is fundamentally mechanically accurate. You know, accuracy actually at short range especially has a lot more to do with the mechanics of your gun and not so much your ammo. You can shoot a big group, but if it's centered on your aim point, then it's an accurate group, okay? Yeah, we. Um, um, you know, I was going to say, we. I kind of tell people that the accuracy is the shooter's ability to interpret their data to kind of hit that target. So, you know, if, if their dope's off, they're not going to be accurate. Right, exactly. And that's especially true at long range. So, so far, I've just been talking about short range, not much effect for BC on accuracy at short range. But at long range, um, you're right, Frank, the shooter's ability to center their group at long range, you know, now you're out there, you got to dial your elevation, you got to dial or hold your wind, however you're centering your group. And when you're doing that, your data's got to be accurate. You have to really know what you're doing with your ballistic solver or your data book. Um, to center your group. So how does BC play in all that? So if you have a low BC bullet, does that make it harder to be accurate at long range? I mean, if you know your dope, you know your dope, so you can still center your group. So what's the effect of BC on accuracy at long range? And that really comes down to how BC helps you overcome environmental uncertainties. All right, so suppose you've got an 800-meter target you're shooting a 308 with a 175 class bullet, and you know you've got a 10 mile an hour crosswind. Or you think it's 10 miles an hour, but you know you can call wind within plus or minus two miles an hour. Okay, and that with that ballistic combination on the spectrum of ballistic coefficients and ballistic performance, that's a pretty low performer, right? Especially if you shoot out of a short barrel, a 175 308 bullet pretty low performance on the spectrum of things. And so if you have plus or minus two miles an hour of uncertainty in your wind call, you're going to miss the target by quite a bit. Now, if instead of a 308 with 175, you were shooting like, you know, some high performance, you know, like a 65 284 with 144s or, you know, like a 338 with 300 grain bullets at high velocity, and you have the same target at the same range, and you can call the wind to that same plus or minus two mile an hour window, your shots with the higher ballistic performance round are going to be to your aim point for a given amount of like misreading the wind than a lower performance uh, bullet would. So when you come down to it, like what's the effect of BC on accuracy at range? It really has to do with overcoming the environmentals and wind being the strongest one. You know, you have drop, too, where, you know, if you've got 10 mils of drop for a target at a range versus, like, 6 mils of drop at a target, now, you know, that higher beast flatter shooting bullet that's got only 6 mils of drop, that's going to be less sensitive to errors in range determination in the vertical plane. 
So like if you miss the range by 10 meters or so, let's say you laze the berm behind the target instead of the target. So you have, you know, 10 meters or whatever of range uncertainty, you're going to miss your, your vertical miss distance will be more with that bullet that has a lower BC and more overall drop as compared to the higher performance one that's flatter that is going to absorb that range uncertainty. So really what, if I could boil it down into like one summary, the impact of BC on accuracy at long range has to do with the way that ballistic performance absorbs uncertainties in windage and in elevation errors. Does that make sense? Yeah, that that's a great explanation. I mean, it, 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 it explains it in such an easy to understand way for guys. I, I think that's, that's awesome. Yeah. Sort of the a problem that comes up is that, like I said in the beginning, guys on the range that, you know, are kind of just using, you know, traditional kind of vocabulary, they use words like accuracy and precision and group size all sort of interchangeably, but they, you know, it really matters. Those differences really matter. Um, the, the next articles that we push in this campaign, you know, they go down the path of BC effect on precision at short range and BC effect on precision at long range. And, you know, that's a, that's a different conversation um, than the one about accuracy. Whereas if you have this conversation on the range with normal shooters, they're likely going to kind of mix elements of those things together. And, you, you know, the new guy who doesn't really understand the fundamentals is going to get really confused by it all. Um, but there's, it's, it's a very interesting um, sort of balance as a, as an optimization problem. You know, I, in fact, I had, I took some graduate level optimization classes when I worked for the air force and, you know, it's about how, how do you find the optimal solution given your design space and constraints. And I wrote a program that basically, optimized bullet designs for certain ranges in certain envi- uh, certain uncertainty conditions. So like, the, you know, and it was interesting because at short range, the quote optimal bullet design was your, you know, short bait, you know, short flat base bullet. Um, but as you went further out, the increase in inherent group size that you got by going to faster twists and longer bullets with boat tails and all that, ended up doing overall better because of the way that they absorb those um, environmental uncertainties. And so it's, it's always cool when you can model something that we kind of know intuitively is true. Like what all the disciplines have gravitated towards at those different ranges is sort of what's predicted when you run an optimization on it. Nice. Now, and, and just to kind of a little quick sidebar and to get Emil in the, in the conversation a bit, we see this, you know, uh, the misspeaking, I guess, with terminology in, in the, in the wind rows as well, where people go, Oh, that's a half value wind. And then they, they, they cut the wind in half instead of it being that three quarter or whatever, where it is, where it's half the distance on the wind rows. And maybe Emil could talk a little bit about that misunderstanding in, in, um, in the wind, you know? Well, you know, Frank, um, you know, words matter, right? So, uh, I think, you know, Brian has a, is a very good way of kind of leading into, uh, understanding these sort of larger topics. So this, this one article, I think is a very important and sort of like laying the groundwork on term terminology and, and what you and, and how it affects, uh, you know, like for example, BC, does it affect precision or accuracy? Well, it affects accuracy. If you're talking about trying to get your aim point, your impact point close to your aim point. However, if you're reading the wind correctly, um, BC may not affect accuracy, right? I mean, if uh, if the BC is consistent and you're reading the wind, reading the wind correctly, then the BC may, has a minimal effect on accuracy. Um, you know, that that gets into the skill level of the shooter and his ability to dope the wind or her ability to dope the wind. And I see that all the time on the range. You know, they, these terms of of, of half value, no value, quarter value, third value. People throw these things around and forget that it, it, they have mathematical or, you know, uh, sort of there's value uh, to it. Yeah. There's, 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 there's integer value. There's arithmetic properties to these freaking terms that you're using. So if a guy says, ah, I, I mean the, the example I use a lot when I'm teaching 
is, hey, you know, we're looking downrange, and a guy guy looks, he's like, yeah, the wind's kind of coming from that direction, and they usually point about 45 degrees, uh, you know, from the line of fire, right? You know, line of fire is zero, full value is 90 degrees. So they're pointing around 130, and it's about half value, so I'm going to use, I'll dope it for five miles an hour, even though it's blowing 10. Well, you know, as we know, um, a 45-degree wind is about 0.71 of one. It's about 71% of the wind and not not 0.5. So right there, because a guy is confusing or conflating terms of like, well, it is. I mean, 130 is halfway between 90 and zero, but it's not halfway between a 0% wind and a 100% wind, right? So... These terms and words are important, and kind of making sure you're using the correct vocabulary uh, is really important if you want to hit your target. Yeah, I, I think that's a great point, and, and, and Brian pointing that out with the precision and accuracy. I, and, and I kind of go into where, you know, that uh, the, the student is guided by the fundamentals of marksmanship for that precision, and then their ability to interpret the data for their accuracy. But then I'll also mention that their rifle system has a bearing on both. You know, how well their equipment is put together. Like Brian said, can you hold 100 yards zero or not? And do you see this wandering around? And the biggest, I guess the weakest link in that system would be the scope or the optic. Does it track correctly? You know, are this is the user using it correctly in, in those kind of things? Because the sight adjustment is what's going to put us on target for that accuracy, but not necessarily control the precision of our shooting. Right. Yeah. It's about the accuracy. Um, and again, that the, the effect of BC, it, it operates on the uncertainties. So like Amos said, if you are a better wind reader um, and, and you can manage that uncertainty down that way, then you're better off with a high or a low BC bullet. It's like a trade-off. Like if you had no uncertainty in wind or range or any of those things uh, that we deal with at long range, then you, it, the BC of the bullet wouldn't matter. The BC only matters because it helps you absorb uncertainty. And if you have no uncertainty, then BC doesn't matter. And there's more than one way to deal with it. You know, you, you could try to minimize the effect of wind uncertainty by um, just shooting the highest BC bullet as fast as you can. And, and that's, te- that's a technical approach to minimizing the effect of wind uncertainty. But I think that um, the practice that, you know, the success that Amel has been able to show over the years in reading wind in a lot of different scenarios and winning a lot of championships, it shows that, that the uncertainty of wind is best managed at, at its root cause level, you know, at, its, at your fundamental ability to put a number on it and a value on it and understand how it scales. And so if you can minimize the uncertainty um, through your assessment of that condition, then you don't have to rely on a high BC bullet going really fast. And of course the best, you'd have the best of both worlds if you could do both, right? Like minimize the uncertainty that you're dealing with and then also shoot a high performance bullet that minimizes the effect of whatever uncertainty, because nobody's going to get hundred percent right hundred percent of the time. Um, well, so I will balance, say that but... 20% of the time, I'm right 100% of the time. Bro. Nice. Just, just, just so you know. Yeah. <laughs> He's like sex panther. That's what's <laughs> <laughs> great about statistics. Yeah. No, and, and, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you think about it, because and we call them wind cheaters for a reason, right? They're cheating the wind because, like Brian said, you're pushing it faster. You're, you're basically trying to max out your, your, your muzzle velocity with that cartridge. And then, you, you know, you got a monster great BC on it. So that window, the cone there is small. And, and I've also seen guys that coming from other calibers hold too much wind. And because that cone is smaller, they miss the target on the upwind side. You know what I mean? Because they've held too much with sort of a wind cheater. And, and they're learning their way. They're doing this, this kind of trial and error because that's how most people learn the wind, you know, in general is a bit of trial and error. I'm going to try this. It either works or it doesn't. Okay, let's try it this way. And so you, when you see those guys shifting their direction, you know, a, a little more here, a little more there, you'll see the miss happen with a wind cheater because they hold too much, which is why most people's tactic is edge a plate. Yeah. 
And that's that's a good observation, Francine. Amel has a, a great way of thinking about that that will let you transition um, wind calls from different calibers. Even if you're used to one thing, it's just a thought process that if you employ it, you can be a lot more versatile and accurate in your wind calls, even as you change between calibers of different performance. Yeah, we've, and Frank, you and I have talked about this uh, a couple of times before, and my approach isn't really unique. It's, um, but I, I, and if you talk to champion shooters on the range and, you know, if you, if you go to a, uh, a PRS finale or something, odds are you're going to hear shooters talking to each other in miles per hour. They're not talking in mills. Guy comes off the line. Hey man, would you shoot? Oh, I shot 1.2. That's mills. That's meaningless information, but good shooters communicate to each other in miles per hour of full value effect. And that's information you can use across caliber, whether I just got done shooting a rimfire and you're going down to shoot the 300 Norma, it doesn't matter. If I give you the total mile per hour net effect of wind, uh, a full value wind, which is very easy to compute, you just take the the direction and apply the percentage of what that direction is worth to the velocity. And you have to do some, you know, you have to do a little bit of fuzzy math too, and take into account if there's, you know, if the bullet's going really high in the air and it's maximum ordinate applying a couple, you're looking at terrain, things like that. But that, that one number of full value effect, I can apply it across any caliber. All I have to do is know what my dope is for that caliber. And that's a lot of good shooters do that, but that process of looking down range, you know, it's the old example of, you know, Nancy Tompkins, one of the best long range shooters in history for NRA stuff, just won everything that you could possibly win. And, you know, if you ask somebody like her what the wind is, she'll say, oh, it's about eight and a half minutes. And you ask, well, why is that? She goes, well, it just is. What do you mean? Well, it just looks like eight and a half minutes. You look at the flags or look at the mirage or look at the dust. It's eight and a half minutes because that's what you don't want to do is develop as a visual cue shooter to give you a number of mills for that one caliber, because the minute I hand you a different rifle with a different bullet, with a different BC, um, you have to start doing some conversion work. Well, my six mil is half the wind is my 308 or it's two thirds the wind. That's not a good way. It's not an efficient way and it's not a fast way of computing wind. So, um, but that's what Brian's referring to is just getting a total net effect of wind speed by just doing a simple, value and velocity yeah totally and and you know this kind of goes into i i don't know if you guys ever heard my sort of pre-shot checklist mantra where i do the wtf where it's wind trajectory or target and then fundamentals so the first thing you're looking at is that win you know what is it what are you going to do about it then it's the target what's the range are you going to dial it hold it whatever that case and then to make sure you put those fundamentals in your head and that's kind of how i explain it putting that win first because I mean even when like when I'm driving to the range I'm looking at it when I get out of the car I'm looking at it and, and and as I'm you know prepping my gear I'm still paying attention to it before I even know what target I'm going to shoot yeah absolutely and and that's uh that's a really great habit like like you say Frank when I'm driving down the road I'm looking at the tops of trees I'm trying to put wind speed to it if I come out of the grocery store, I'm looking at the flag. Uh, I'm looking at the mirage going across the tops of the cars in the parking lot. I'm looking at the leaves, looking at the grass blowing. Pretty much whenever I'm conscious and walking around, I'm looking at visual cues and trying to figure out wind speed, always practicing it and it becomes a habit and you get pretty bloody good at it. Anybody can. You just need a little bit, a little bit of time and practice of learning those skills. No, nah, totally. That's great advice. And I tell people that, you know, that have a Kestrel, you know, their first thing should be, I think the wind is X miles per hour, then pull the Kestrel out and confirm it to build that personal database. You know, so it's it right. Go, it goes that way. Yeah, that, that's a great way to sort of educate your intuition. You know, you can you can guess all day long and get very used to guessing. But unless you have some measurement as feedback to tell you how accurate your guess is. You, you may you may be you know developing a very um, bad habits or inaccurate eyeball for the wind. So yeah, the combination of 
always being aware and looking and trying to put a number on it, but then get that corrective feedback, show you what it really is. Um, and Emil also has a thing that he used to do where, you know, it's, it's, it's cool to do it like at a point where you can feel the wind and then guess it. But a lot of times you're shooting long range, you have to be looking at cues like what that flag or tree or bush looks like 800 yards away. And in that case, you know, you need somebody downrange with a Kestrel standing beside that indicator to tell you what the real value is at that point and how it looks through a spotting scope at long distance. Yeah. When I was, uh, when I was in the army and, uh, you know, it, uh, having a bunch of privates running around was awesome. Uh, so, so that I could practice or the shooters could practice, we would take turns. We would go down range, stand by tall grass, weeds, uh, a range flag in our game. We had wind flags, um, or whatever it was. And I do it tactical training too, where have guys, uh, you know, 800, 900 yards away from each other with a, with a, with a radio and each for the Kestrel and you're by some sort of terrain feature that's showing some sort of feature that's showing the wind and you're just looking at it through optics you like, and you make a guess. Okay. I think the wind's blowing eight miles an hour there. Call the guy on the radio. Hey man, what's your Kestrel say? And if he says, no, it's 13. You're like, oh shit. Okay. So that is 13. Okay, when it's doing this and doing that, that's 13. And that's a way to kind of calibrate your brain. It's a really, really good and cheap training tool. Um, all you need are a couple of handhelds, um, you know, or, you know, up in Michigan, you know, they can use the fishing line and Dixie cup thing. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. but it, it, but it's a, it's a good, it's a good train. Or if you have an Android phone, it's a good training tool. Um, <laughs> really. Is. I'm just saying. One of us was difficult to get on a call today, and it wasn't this guy with an Android. It was the iPhone guy. So okay. that's all. It was me. No, it was it was it was mainly because I was using two services. But yeah, it was my iPhone. I'll, I'll admit that. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I I have to agree though that the Androids are terrible. I have one, and it, it's not that great. But um, <laughs> yeah. but uh, anyway. Shut up. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is in in. And, and that's where, like, we, we, we kind of push people towards that BC method where if they need to know a shortcut is take that first number of the G1 BC and that becomes their initial mile per hour. And, and of course, it changes with uh, elevation and, it, we, you know, it's like a, a, about a 4,000 DA change will move that needle a little. And then, um, you know, there's there are other variables, but it's it's pretty close to say my mile an hour gun is this based on that bullet based on the BC. Cause I, maybe Brian can talk just a little bit on how like your, your software interprets the BC for wind. Oh, so the way the software, the way that ballistic solver calculates wind deflection, uh, it's, it's different from what, what I think most guys would expect. Like we've got these speed formulas for wind, these rules of thumb, these calculations that you can do, you know, either in your head or just on scratch paper that are approximate quick ways to arrive at a wind solution. And I think most guys imagine that ballistic solvers have some version of that running to give you wind deflection. And the reality is that's not how it works at all. All of those speed formulas, anything you've seen printed in a book for a closed form wind solution is an approximation to wind deflection just made into a form that's tractable for people to solve quickly in the field. Um, the way that a ballistic solver actually calculates wind deflection is, um, okay, this could be the beginning of a 30-minute Yeah, segment I, we or, were short, just, we'll shortcut it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah let's shortcut it. So you're in an integration loop running, solving the equations of motion about uh, a thousand times a second. And at every loop, you're calculating the lag time and the vacuum time of flight and the difference between those is multiplied by the effective crosswind and that becomes your wind deflection for that segment and then every segment along the way gets added up and culminates into your actual wind deflection so it's not by any means in the same way that calculating velocity decay uh, time of flight um, you know trajectory none of that stuff is really solvable by hand and so neither is the wind that's done in the integration loop. So it's, and now a lot of those approximations are close enough. They'll get you within your ability to read the wind, which is practically all, you know, that's what matters. If you can 
if you can whip out a speed formula and hit a target, that's awesome. You know, it doesn't matter that it's just an approximation if it's good enough. So, but that's not what's running in ballistic solvers. Nice, nice. Yeah. So that, that just goes to let people know that there, there's a little bit more kind of work going behind the scenes. And, and we tend to shortcut it in the field when we talk to each other. Like, uh, and I like your, 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 your uh, uh, terminology of, of speed formulas because that's exactly what they are. They're, they're meant to be fast and, 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 you know, get it done. And, yeah, and Frank, same thing is true of same thing is true of look angles like shooting up and downhill. You know, you've got the rifleman's rule, the improved rifleman's rule, and most of them are some way of scaling your look angle, uh, like the cosine of the look angle times the distance. That's the rifleman's rule. That's the most crude approximation. Or you could use the cosine of the look angle times your drop at that range, and that would be your uh, corrected drop. That's a lot more accurate, but it's still just an approximation. The actual way that uh, trajectory gets calculated on a look angle shot is much more complicated. It has You have not only to account for gravity not pulling the bullet directly away from your line of sight. Okay, it's pulling the oh, only a component of gravity is now pulling the bullet away from your line of sight. But then there's also the effect of air density gradient. So if you're shooting a long range shot at a steep angle, you're shooting uphill, your bullet ends up in a higher DA than where it started. So you've got to account for that the effects of diminishing atmospheric drag as the bullets go, you know, flying up into thinner air. So, and the ballistic solver again does that every thousandth of a second, and it can, you know, integrate that into the actual solution. Whereas, like the rifleman's rule, the improvement rifleman's rule, they're like speed formulas that guys can do quickly to make corrections. Yeah, I mean, it's almost be backwards, right? When you talk about like the uh, the air density decreasing. So it, it's, it's, it's sort of backwards to how everything else we shoot works where most things sort of, you know, decelerate and increase, you know, and drop and things like that, where when you're shooting that crazy, the, the gradient like you're talking about, you're, you're going in the opposite direction. Yeah, the bullet's still slowing down. It's just not slowing down as rapidly as it climbs into thinner air. Yep, yep. Awesome. Hey, I want to get into, because we don't have a lot of time today um, and, and we're crossing, but I want to talk a little bit about the 22 stuff because it is so popular. We're getting back out into the, into, you know, the world again. They're letting us out our houses out of, off a of house arrest. And, and so I want to talk a little bit about the 22 stuff because that is super popular and you guys do have a lot of, um, you know, uh, support for 22s. Uh, with, through the Lapua brand and, and different thing, and you even have the SK and, and stuff like that. So I, I wanted to get into just a, a touch on to uh, the 22 area of shooting. Sure, Frank. Okay. Um, yeah, we're 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 here. I mean, we have um, so Capstone. Uh, you know, we we import the the Lapua and the SK brands, and uh, there really is, you know, the the Lapua brands are uh, the three. The three levels of rimfire in Lapua are Center X, Midas Plus, and Exact. Um, in Schönebeck, Germany, where they make the Lapua uh, rimfire ammunition, every lot of ammunition starts out to be Exact. Um, they have some metrics on the group size i think the goal the final goal for group size is about less than about 10 millimeters at 50 meters uh for 10 shot groups uh there's there's uh you know 25.4 millimeters in an inch so you know a little less than you know a little less than half an inch at 50 meters that's the that's the goal for exact um how how it tests in the fixture over there is how it is graded so that's why you see the price point difference between the different uh, levels of ammunition. However, I will say um, that's in their test fixture. I mean, I have seen lots in my personal rifle of Centerex outperform the most expensive of Exact. So the real way to find the best ammunition for your rifle, the real way, is to get it tested. Um, and we have uh, we have two um, rimfire test centers. Um, in Capstone, we have one in Mesa, Arizona, and we have one in uh, uh, Marengo, Ohio, 
which is um, at the Cardinal uh, Shooting Center in Ohio, near Columbus, I believe. And there, uh, uh, you can ship your rifle to them, uh, and they can test it for you, or you can bring your rifle, and you, they can test it while you're right there. And you can specify what you want tested. Um, testing fee is pretty nominal. I think it's about 50 bucks to get your rifle tested. Um, you know, we have FFLs at both of those centers, so they can, they can receive your rifle you, as long as you ship it from an FFL and then send it right back to your FFL. Um, and, uh, and, you know, you can buy a case of ammunition cases, 5,000 rounds, uh, matched to your rifle. We've got, um, we've got adapters for pretty much every rimfire rifle out there from 1022 up to, you know, the, the highest level Olympic Anschutz or Grunig, um, or Bleicher, uh, rimfires like they use in, in the Olympic type shooting small bore. So your rifle's put in a return to battery fixture. It's a tunnel. And we can test uh, 50 meters and 100 meters. Um, so we can get group size on the same group um, through our acoustic targets, uh, Suicasco acoustic targets at both 50 and 100 meters. So there's a lot of great, uh, a lot of great info you get, and you can tailor your gun. I mean, if you're getting beaten consistently by somebody in a rimfire, you know, if it's any sort of precision rimfire match, he's probably tested his ammo. In a in a in a manner similar to this, nice, nice. Now, um, putting putting rimfire into Brian your software, there there's a, a few minor changes. It's scalable, but uh, you know they'll they'll change that BC variation for guys. Can you go into just a a, a tiny bit of, of guys using the 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 AB software for twenty twos? Yeah, um, it works exactly the same as center fires. Um, that's what's nice about the equations of motion is they're scalable. As, you know, as long as you have something with semi-predictable drag, you can have a BC and then a muzzle velocity. And in all the sites, tra trajectory stuff, it all works the same. So um, you could use uh, probably a G1 BC. Um, you know, we have published a number of them that we've shot on the radar, and they're in our library. And, but to, the truth is, a lot of those uh, rimfire bullets are very similar. You know, it's not like centerfire where you've got dramatic differences in bullet design. Most of them look the same across all the different brands. You know, even some that are copper look pretty much like the lead bullets. They're almost all 40 grains, almost all the same shape. So there's really not that much difference in BC uh, between all the available rimfire bullets. And on top of that, the... The BC is not as important to an accurate trajectory prediction for rimfire as it is for centerfire. And the reason has to do with it being subsonic. So the aerodynamic drag that acts on something to slow it down and sort of dictate its trajectory is proportional to how fast it's going. And it's not linear, it's quadratic. So if you double your speed, you have four times the aerodynamic drag. If you triple your speed, you have eight times the aerodynamic drag. So going from like 1,000 foot per second rimfire ammo up to 3,000 foot per second centerfire ammo, that means you've got eight times more aerodynamic drag on that um, centerfire round. It's not three times more, it's eight times more. And so one consequence of that is that if you have like a 1% error in your BC on that centerfire round, that's the same, has the same consequence in trajectory prediction as having an 8% error on your drag for the rimfire at 1,000 feet per second. So the point of all that is the rimfire rounds are a lot less sensitive to errors in BC. So don't worry about it if you can't find the exact, if you can't find the exact uh, number for that rimfire BC. If you get something that's close for that class of bullet, then that's probably not going to be the reason you're missing targets. So on the rimfire stuff and anything subsonic, the thing that really drives the accuracy of your ballistic solutions is the muzzle velocity. Okay, that's, that's the uncertainty that you trade for. So in centerfire, you can get away with, say, 10 feet per second isn't really going to kill your trajectory predictions at 400 yards. But in a rimfire, you know, pull it up in a ballistics program one time and run your rimfire ballistics at 400 yards then change the muzzle velocity 10 feet per second. It is shocking how much difference in drop that you'll have. And so when you're setting up a ballistic solver for rimfire, 
the BC isn't that important. Get, get as close as you can. But the thing you really want to spend your time on is understanding the muzzle velocity of your rifle with your lot of ammo, uh, because that's what's going to drive the accuracy of your ballistic predictions. Very nice. And quick question on this too. Do you have any um, advice on zeroing a rim fire? Like a a lot of the comps, and and, and I'll qualify this a little bit for you, a lot of the comps will go to 200 yards. That'll be like max range for the rim fire. So, And even if it is a 100-yard NRL 22 type event, um, which is great too, do you you see, because there's a lot of discussion going on right now you know, a 30-yard zero, a 25-yard zero, some guys do 50. We're, you know, there's all these swirls in, in there, there's, there's sort of a, um, a, a, a debate about zeroing a 22 in, in, in a same, I guess, percentage scalable way. I don't know the right word off the top of my head this morning. Um, that mirrors your center fire, where basically they wanted a little shorter range on your 22 zero. And then it approximates a center fire type trajectory better instead of uh, uh, where the rim fire trajectories seem to be sort of based in the middle. Yeah, yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, so I think you definitely you definitely want a shorter range zero for rim fire. And so the reason we one of the reasons we advise hundred yard zeros for center fire is because if you look at a trajectory plot from the side you can see like the bullet comes out of the barrel two, three inches below your line of sight and it comes up and it kind of crests at a hundred yards where you're zeroed. And then, so that makes your zero very insensitive to the exact distance. You could be at 105, you could be at 94 and you're pretty much zeroed for that whole way because your trajectory is kind of like at a, at a hilltop there. Um, However, if you zeroed a 22 rimfire at a hundred yards, the trajectory's got to like scream way above your line of sight, and then it comes falling through your line of sight pretty steeply at 100 yards. So that makes your your range your zero range a lot more sensitive to the actual distance, right? So now if you're at a 100 yard range trying to get 100 meter zero, you probably can't do that, or you can't ignore the error that you'll have there. And so, but if you pull your rimfire zero into 50 yards then you kind of have that same situation as you do with center fire at a hundred where at 50 yards, your rim fire trajectory is kind of peaking out at 50. Uh, and so, you know, your trajectory is close to the line of sight for quite a ways there. And plus another reason we advise a hundred meters for center fire zeros instead of farther is because at a hundred, the atmospherics don't really have a chance to work much on the bullet and move, you know, like ruin your wind zero. If you're trying to zero on a windy day, uh, but a 22 at 100 yards, you're, you sure as shit are going to get some uh, environmental influences. So that's another reason we, you know, advise pulling the rimfire zero into 50 yards or so. You just you still get wind deflection at 50, but it won't be near as bad as you'll have at 100. So it's easier to have a, a certain, you know, you can have more confidence in your rimfire zero if it's at a shorter range. And then I guess the final reason it's it's good to zero rimfire closer is depending on the course of fire that you're shooting. Like, I never want to have a zero on a gun for a distance that I might have to shoot targets, that I might miss targets between me and my zero for doing that. So if you're zeroed at 100 with your rimfire, and that puts you like four, three or four inches over a target at 50, then you've got to start dialing down. Well, if you've got a lot of targets at like 20, 40, 70 yards, well, now there's a lot of shit going on between you and your zero that you'll have to dial down for. And that I think it's a lot easier and natural for guys to work up from their zero always rather than have to come down to something. So, I mean, none of, the, none of those reasons are absolute set in stone that dictate right from wrong. But I think they're all good things to consider when you're zeroing a rimfire. No, excellent advice. And that's exactly what guys have been discussing uh, you know, and, and a lot of it has been that one-tenth variation on a target, but like 30 to 40 yards or something. 
uh, and I don't have the numbers off the top of my head as well, uh, you know, but they're, they're looking at, well, I have to dial up two tenths to hit this. Well, if I don't do this, then I only have to kind of just hold top of a target. You know, it's only a tenth difference and it's not a dialable thing. So there, there is a, a, a whole lot of discussion going on what is optimal to zero twenty twos, and and so that's kind of where I wanted to get your take, and and I think you 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 gave people a, a lot of great stuff to think about with that, and explained it really well for people to understand it. I mean, the more they understand, the more accurate they're going to be, the better they're going to be able to diagnose any issues or problems like that. So that I mean, that's the whole point of, of these endless conversations that we tend to have. And Frank, I've got right. I've got I've got one quick thing to add to that. Um, uh, you know, zeroing it, it reminds me of like which range you should zero at. You know, the M4 and the M16 sort of military arguments and uh, different you know sort of theories about where we should zero these optics because of engagement ranges and things like that. Um, when you're talking about parsing where your where your rimfire should be zeroed, that's really a tactical decision, I think, for a lot of guys. Um, a, it should be short range for all the, all the reasons that Brian noted. Um, but you know, for a guy's particular application, if it's an NRL match, 100 to 200, or if he's shooting something shorter or farther away, or if he has a ballistic reticle with say wind dots, and he's trying to calibrate his wind dots based on a zero, a lot of that is trial and error and guys coming up with their own, uh, techniques, tactical you know, as we used to say in the military, a TTP, right? Tactics, techniques, and procedures in order to increase your hit percentage using that platform at the tar targets that you have to do. So I'm not sure there's a right answer, um, you know, and I think it's very subjective based on a guy's need. So you know, there may not be any wrong answers unless a guy tells me he wants a zero at 200 because that's the way Carlos Hathcock did it or some yeah. shit. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but other than that, it's very personalized because it's a truly it's a TTP based on their platform and what they're shooting. Right. And, and, and yeah, that's – oh, go ahead. It's, it's driven a lot on the targets. That's your second thing in the WTF, right, Frank, is the target. Like mm -hmm. It's so important to consider your target when you're developing your, your TTP because, like, if, you're, if all you care about are hitting, like, like Ipsic silhouettes, then, you know, it's hard to argue 100 versus 50 yards, zero, or one – because your target's so big. But if you're trying to hit these little one-inch pain-in-the-ass targets that they have in matches, like these tiny, tiny targets, where you basically your objective has to be to eliminate all sources of error because there's no room to – there's not a big target to soak that up, then that's when you got to put a fine point on it and, like, you know, really consider um, the consequences of one zero range over another. Because if your target's big – shit, you probably could zero at 200 and hold right on everything out to some, you know, 250 or something. Um, but targets aren't always big. So it's important to understand your objective, what your targets are, and, you know, roll that into your decision-making. Nice. Yeah, that's great advice for everybody out there listening and, and to have that. Um, I got you guys just for a short amount of time today. So is there anything you need to wrap up that we hadn't discussed uh, I know everybody needs to go to the uh, burgernobsbc.com for these articles. Like I said, if you want to deep dive into what we're talking about, that's where you head to go read the articles that Brian posted, and, and you can get this. These discussions kind of are reinforcing those those articles posted online, so make sure you guys head over for that. But uh, any other follow-up that you guys had planned on discussing? In, in, I think we nailed everything, but just checking. For me, Frank, yeah, it's I, just uh, uh, for me, Frank. Um, just go to the website and look at the blog. That's where all of our new products are listed. You know, to include like the 153.5 new long-range hybrid target and 6.5. That bullet's a monster. I've already I'm built. I already built the 64 to shoot it. Um, but go to that blog that has all of our new releases. And Brian and. The yeah, so the final, I'm going to go super quick because I don't want to get cut off again. Um, so talking about rimfire, especially at long range, um, we talked about the importance of muzzle velocity for an accurate trajectory prediction, but that same principle goes for the SD of your muzzle velocity. Amal talked about how that ammo is sorted on quality based on its precision at short range. Well, that's like the primary use scenario for it, so naturally that's how they sort it. But if you're shooting rimfire at any kind of distance, 
you don't necessarily want to pick what group's best for you at 50 yards. If you're going to be trying to hit targets at four and 500 yards, what you want to look at for long distance rimfire ammo is what gives you the smallest SD. You know, I gladly take double the group size at a hundred meters on rimfire ammo. If it had like near zero SD on muzzle velocity, because at long range, you'll hit more targets that way. So that's just understanding the sensitivity of, again, what your target is, how far away it is, what makes it hard to hit that target. That is awesome. That's awesome advice to end this off on. I think, and, and that's probably one that's going to bring questions around that we can talk next time around on it. Cause I, I, I do, I think that that SD conversation where everybody discusses SDs and size and they all want to get them in that single digit. I don't think people understand the long range consequences of what either the pro and con, I guess is a better way of putting it of, of what an SD means. And that might be our next discussion. Yeah, yeah, sure. You can't see it at 100 yards where a lot of people develop their loads, but you live and die by SDs at long range, not just muzzle velocity, but the SD of BC, which was our conversation here, I think, last time. Yeah, yep. Excellent. Well, guys, thank you for coming on again. I really appreciate it. We got a couple more episodes. Thanks, everybody, for commenting, for sending questions in. Uh, Sniper's Hide has been collecting a lot of the questions. I don't see as many guys on the Facebook side, but um, snipershide.com, if you want to uh, throw your questions out, there's an Everyday Sniper Forum section. And, and most people have been putting their questions in there. But again, thanks to uh, Brian to taking his time out, Emil for his time as well, and 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 we really appreciate it. Thank you, Frank. Thank you. All right, I'm gonna close it out. You guys stand real quick, and and we'll done. Thanks a lot, guys, and don't forget to comment and share. We appreciate you.